cloud. I hope this, you know, my thing can handle it. Um, it's loading, loading. Technology, right? I know, right? Uh, but hopefully it works. You know, in the beginning of quarantine, it was kind of like interview. Oh, yeah, they got us all recorded on this stuff. And the way I figure it, you know what? Let's burn their ears, make their ears burn red with the crap we say. Because, you know, everything we do digitally is recorded on a server array somewhere. It's yep. just indexing it with SEO, you know? So yep. the way I look at it, I'm not going to edit myself. They've already got stuff from what I said 10 years ago somewhere. If they want to blackmail me with it, I'm just going to double down. Uh, yep. as far as I'm concerned. Destroy them with intelligence. All right, cool. So finally, I think I tagged you so that it can show up on your timeline as well. Okay, so let's go live. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Okay, it's still setting. <laughs> what the hell? Okay, this should be the last thing. It's making me jump through hurdles for no reason. So setting up your meeting for Facebook Live, redirecting. Are we good? It's telling me. It's tagging me. It said it's got you. It's got ah, all right, we're good. All right, so I'm super excited uh, to welcome my next guest. Um, you know, we've been hanging out in the comedy circle for a little bit, and, you know, I kept seeing this guy's name pop up because whenever I would express an opinion that was slightly controversial, some of you like, you know, you sound just like Kevin Bennett. You just sound like just like ah. Kevin. And I was ah. like, because I think I already <laughs> knew you, but then I was like, who is this guy? So, you know, I've seen your comedy uh, obviously very intelligent guy um, with a very a lot of opinions I think people should not if not even agree but just at least consider so thank you so much uh, for being yeah, on the show today for me. and, and yeah. the way I look at it you know I am willing to do any show with anybody and uh, anybody who makes people laugh consistently in terms of comedy I'll book them but whether or not people make anybody laugh we're in a community and the vast majority of us are we're not even D-list. We're not even, yeah. if you took the <laughs> we're alphabet, we're, on the yeah, we're, we're outside the alphabet. We're, yeah. we're on a Cyrillic D-list, yeah. you know? So as far as I'm concerned, uh, people shouldn't be getting highfalutin. Uh, we're, what needs to be done, especially for artisans, is people need to come together and they need to support one another, regardless of their ideology. I'll book anybody that's funny. That's all I care about. I haven't been doing a lot of bookings since COVID-19 shit to bed and the whole world turned into Thunderdome. But I will, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you make the audience laugh, that's my qualification. Because yes. personal ideas, the stage is a performance space. It's about doing the entertainment thing first. And what's happened, especially with this uh, cancel culture right now, is everybody puts a social mandate above skill. It's like, well, sure, he's a good painter, but does he go to a bunch of protests? <laughs> Who cares? Does his painting make you feel something? Does he believe it? Does he agree with you or not? Who cares? Most of the people I like the most, I don't agree with them. Doesn't diminish the value of their art. Right, right. And I totally forgot to introduce you, by the way. So if you guys want to see more of him, totally uh, check out. I'm from Wyoming, obviously, by French accent, so that you can you know, see, see more of Kevin's work. So I'm super excited. It's, now. A, it's, it's an audio album right now. I don't have, I've got okay. some visual stuff on YouTube, but you can find it on Spotify and iTunes and everything. Buy it, please. I, I, yes, I, I, want, I want to keep doing what I'm doing. Hell yeah. I love it. So, um, I have so many questions, but let's just, let's just get started because I think rage and hatred gets people talking very quickly. So it what does. do you think is wrong with stand up comedy today? I'll tell you what's wrong with stand-up comedy. It's, I just outlined it. People are less concerned with the comedy than they are everybody filling in these identity politics, social media, you know, social boxes. And, you know, I, I've got some people that are on the left and right I'm friends with that don't do that. God bless them. But there are people on the left and the right who, instead of doing comedy based on let's make an audience laugh, they're tribal. And it's not... That's not what comedy is. Comedy is supposed to be an actual bastion of free speech where anybody from any background can say anything provided it's funny. The key is it has to be funny. You can't, if you're going to preach, that's a different thing. I don't preach in my comedy. I save that for Facebook or a conversation. My comedy is about uh, little, little sublime funny thoughts or stories 
or puns or verbal relationships or observations that everybody's had but hasn't realized. I just want to make people laugh in a way that the most people from the most diverse backgrounds are able to enjoy. That's it. That's it. And I, you know, I'd like to dovetail that into like a movie. I've got a few ideas for some comedy movies. I'd like to see that happen. I've got some ideas for sci-fi movies. I'd like to see that happen. That's my, that's what I'm after. And for some reason, because my ideology is not in lockstep with other socially minded individuals, who a lot of them are in group think, let's be honest, because I'm not in lockstep with the group think, I'm often sidelined, but not always. And, and this may surprise you, as crazy as California is right now, they have not been as mean to me as Colorado has been, which I think is very strange. That's but that said, I've got good contacts in both states and very, there's great talent in both states on both sides of the fence. There just doesn't need to be this conflict. And that's the problem with comedy today is people are, they're just fighting over nothing. I, I don't know if it was Doug Stanhope or there's a, there's a comedian in 2000 or 2001 and he had this bit. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was right before the, tr the trade towers fell. He said, uh, what do we got to be angry about in America? What do we got? We got angry midgets. And his point was, people in this country have it so good, we've got nothing to be angry about, so we're angry about nothing. And that has stuck with me to this day. I think it was Stanhope, but it might have been um, Craig Schumacher. I'm not sure. Schumacher. Awesome. I love it. So I'm just curious, have you ever been canceled for your opinions? And have you? Oh, yeah. Ever oh, that's why I ended yeah. up in L.A. I, uh, I started doing comedy in 2011 in Colorado. And in 2014, a conglomeration of Bolsheviks, not Mensheviks, Bolsheviks, showed up uh, to the scene. And I don't even, I wonder if they even knew that's the role they were fulfilling in society when they came to the scene. But uh, a particular individual whose name I won't mention, not because I'm afraid of him, I just don't want to help him out accidentally. Yeah. Uh, he took issue with one of my opinions and he said, let's meet out back. Now, here I was thinking, because in Colorado, people do a lot of weed. I was like, ah, he wants to smoke <laughs> some stuff. And, and he wants to talk philosophy. Okay, I'm okay with that. I'm fine with that. Let's meet out back and do that. And he wanted to fight. And I didn't realize that until we got back there. And he said, uh, you called me underhanded. I said, no, 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 no. I called Jesuits in the Catholic Church underhanded. You took it the wrong way because you know you're underhanded. And now I'm calling you to your face underhanded. And I literally turned the other cheek on him. He's like, well, let's fight. I said, no, I'm not going to fight you because this isn't the Christian way to do it. Here's what I'll do. I'll close my eyes. And I will allow you to hit me. And then we'll go back and do our show. So I closed my eyes and I let him hit me. And then I literally turned the other cheek on this guy. And he freaked out because he thought I was trying to trap him. No, no, no. I was just literally following what I believe. And so we're walking back. And uh, he was telling me how I better not say anything or all this. And I said, what are you going to do? Stab me in the back while I sleep? Let's just have a comedy show and not talk about this. And I held the door for the guy. And that was, I would admit, there might have been a level of passive aggressiveness to that. But my whole thing was, no, I'm going to do the right thing here. And I held the door for the guy, and that pissed him off so much he spit in my face. And that made me mad enough. I tried to knock his hat off, and he started pinwheeling, and he got me. And the bouncers pulled us off before anything could happen. And so there was this rift. And what the dude did, this is in 2014. For the next two years, the dude did his dead-level best to try and destroy me in the scene where I'd been before he was even there. We welcome this guy in with open arms. He has a difference in ideology, tries to start a fight. I won't rise to it. So what does he do? He tries to badmouth me behind my back like some sort of Bolshevik rat. I wasn't into that. So in 2016, 2015 comes around and I'm already thinking about leaving Colorado because I've been doing a bunch of uh, local Midwest bookers. Like I did a bunch of Tribble uh, run entertainment and entertainment max. And I did some charter gigs and uh, some summit entertainment, just little, you know, Midwest stuff, some in the Northwest, you know, Pacific Northwest. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, I've hit my ceiling in Colorado and I'm not going to count to the politics at the comedy works place. Cause you know, it's just a club. So I'm like, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go live in my car in LA and see what happens. And then I saw breaking bad in 2015 and he got that RV for 10 grand. And I'm like, you know what? I'll bet you I could get an RV for half that that's half size that that's a little older and i was like you know what i'll bet you i can get one for 2500 bucks and fix it up for another 2500 and live in the sucker out in la so i prayed over a coin and flipped it i said god you want me to do this here are the two things i need it's got to be under 86,000 miles or 85,000 miles and it's got to be 2500 or under 
I found one for 2,500, talked them down to 2,200, and it had 84,600 miles on it. So I bought the thing, and I went out to LA in 2016, and uh, it broke down, and I sold it, and I got another one. And I got in uh, America's Got Talent in 2018, and uh, I've been uh, doing comedy ever since. And if it was not for this false pandemic, or as my dad says, dem panic, I would still be out in LA doing comedy, but they closed down the coffee shops. They closed down the gyms. I have a cat in my RV. I didn't want to have them tow my RV and do something to the cat or put me in a hotel with a bunch of hobos who definitely have diseases I don't want. So I left California until everything simmers down and I was about to come back, but then the whole world shit the bed again on this George Floyd thing. So I've just been treading water, uh, trying to, to, to not lose my joie de vivre and passion and to make plans for the future. And right now, here's my thought. I think, I think we're dealing with a situation where we're going to have very massive inflation very soon. I think people need to prepare for that above all else at this point. I think the civil war that we're seeing is going to, I think it's going to dampen down, but I think we're going to see some bad inflation very soon. Very interesting. Wow. That was hilarious. Um, you know, not for you at the time, but I'm just listening to this. Amazing. So I, uh, you know, I, I've gone to a lot of trouble as well. <laughs> I think because of my gender, I, I didn't have to come to fisticuffs with people, but mm -hmm. you know, I am prepared to if, if necessary. So my question is to you, like, why do you think a lot of comedians are this way? And I want to say male comedians because they seem the most aggressive about it. Like I've not seen this in other fields where, you know, you actually literally beat people up uh, for having different opinions. Why do you think it's like in this industry or like, what are your thoughts? Why are people like this? Why are comedians like this? Well, it's not just comedians. It's the entertainment industry in general and it goes deep. You can actually trace it back all the way to Commedia dell'arte down in Italy in the 1500s. Um, have you ever heard of agit prop theater, agitational no. propaganda? No. Okay. Agitational propaganda is basically a dumb show that's not on a stage or in any theatrical setting. It's done in the real world as a means of stimulating people, getting them raring to go. Oh, okay. Well, when I was in theater, I got a BA in theater because I wanted to be an actor because there was a time I was retarded. And in theater, I, uh, I learned because our, our professors would teach us about varying types of theater and the genesis of theater. And the term theater literally means the audience and the mission of theater they teach you in Theater 101, I learned this when I was 17, is to instruct and to delight. And I thought, okay, to instruct and delight. What they were doing is they were soft selling young teenage theatrical students to be propagandists. So they teach you to be vulnerable and do things that put you outside your comfort zone. And basically what they do is they're, they're brainwashing you. And I didn't realize it then, but I was blessed because I know the Lord. And so he allowed me to see things other people in my station did not. He allowed me to see that there was a lot of BS going on. Where I got my bachelor's degree, the head of the theater department uh, would take girls who were over 18 but under 21 over to his place to have a few drinks. And they didn't think it was uh, inappropriate. It was inappropriate. It was wildly inappropriate. The guy was married, for goodness sake. He was an old fat dude with the gout. So it was, it was just not a good thing to do. But they just thought they were participating in an artistic experiment. When I was in high school, there was a dude who came from LA who did local films and worked with the under, with the disadvantaged youth in my hometown. And he was sleeping with a girl who was 17. And this didn't come out until a couple years ago. Because again, he convinced her they were doing a sort of social experiment. He was, that was statutory rape is what it was. Because she was too young and inexperienced to realize what was going on. He was doing this. So theater in general and the arts have been co-opted for the purposes of propaganda for many years. And you can trace it back through the literature if you really want to take the time to do that. You can probably trace it all the way back to Shakespeare, but Commedia dell'arte predates Shakespeare, I believe. I'd have to double check. It's been a while since I was in college. The point being, a lot of these theatrical disciplines are built by those who are subversive to begin with. And they utilize the ignorance of younger people who are new to the art form and don't realize it as a means of perpetuating the facade. So they, they get them in while they're young so they can use them and they keep doing it. And it becomes a sort of culture. And by, you know, they, they, in, in, in Hollywood, they're always going to say, ooh, uh, he just doesn't have it or he has it. Nobody has it. It is this. It's the ability to 
competently perform artistically while having the moral flexibility to lie, cheat, and steal, just like those putting on the shows do. That's what it is. So these people who have it are almost unilaterally rats. Now, comedy is a little bit different because a lot of people come into comedy without having a theatrical background. Many do, like myself, many don't. So those who come into comedy without a theatrical background usually just have something to say and they're trying to, you know, poke at society. But what happens now and for about the last 10 or 15 years is comedy has become alt comedy. It started with David Cross and uh, uh, what's his name in, in Better Call Saul in the Mr. Show guys, the Mr. Show guys. Uh, I can't remember his name now for some reason. Uh, these guys did Mr. Show in the 90s and early aughts. And it's a great show and they're very funny. Their whole approach to comedy was sort of a subversive middle finger with atheist socialist overtones to the conservative middle class of America. And that came to predominate in open mics and showcases around the country, spreading out like ripples in a pond for many years. Now it is, the ripples are stopping because it became so prevalent that it became an orthodoxy like a cult. And there is a cult nature to a lot of this entertainment stuff. It'd take me a long time to get into it, but I can't. So what's happening now is people are waking up to the fact that these cheese weasels are cringy. They're not funny. They're just advocating the narrative points and people are tired of it. They're so tired of it. If you're just a little bit against that, everybody wants to listen to you. Because what a lot of these comedians forget, because at so many other shows, there's no audience, it's just other comedians. What they forget is that common people in America don't want to be told they're evil because they don't agree with Bolshevik ideology. They just want to laugh. They just want to laugh at a pun. They just want to set up and punchline. That's it. That's all. They want to hear funny accents and ha, ha, ha. That is all. It's not a big deal. All right? Uh, they they want to hear uh, somebody, you know, they want to hear somebody do this voice right here and not try to tell them that they are bad because they are laughing at it. They just want to laugh. And so now the reason I think right now so many people have gotten into this militant cultish adherence of lockstep groupthink uh, comedy is because that became the popular medium, the popular flavor of comedy, as many of these people started. And as a result, uh, that's all they know. But it's, it's ending now. So basically, the alt comics of today are the same comics that in the 80s were saying, I just flew in from New York and boy, are my arms tired. That's alt comedy. It is a played, uh, it, it is a played generational form of comedy that's specific to a time and comedy itself doesn't rely on politics at all comedy as an idea transcends all that however since the arts are already inclined toward a subversive sort of jacobin bolshevik antifa blm ideology to begin with well naturally a lot of people follow the path of least resistance and so it has come to predominate but it's actually killing comedy because audiences don't want it so it is on the way out and what's probably going to replace it is something that's bad for other reasons. It's probably going to be some hardcore conservative stuff that's on the other side of the wrong side of the fence. So the balance is going to be in between those two. And that's what I think everybody needs to look at. Awesome. I love your intelligent discussions because you kind of frame it historically, which I love. Um, so, okay. Thank you. Because Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it, it's not just, you know, oh, I feel bad. So, you know, I'm going to attack this guy. Um, but actually, you know, framed in, in some solid facts. So um, you've been uh, Facebook jailed a lot. Oh, yeah. um, and I've been Facebook uh, well, jailed year. <laughs> as, yeah. as well. So, you know, you're out. And like, so what are your thoughts on like, you know, just censorship? Because I, I'm fine if people don't want to book me because, you know, they don't agree with my thoughts. But when you can't even share your own thoughts on like a social media platform on the Internet, um, for me, it's a little bit concerning. So what are your thoughts on being, you know, banned and jailed and, you know, people always attacking you on um, Facebook and social media? Well, the technocracy is more than just social media. Social media is just the wing of the technocracy we're most aware of. What we're dealing with right now, oh, this is my kitty. Oh, Say that's hi to so kitty. Oh, that's so cute. She's, with, she's been with me in my RV 
for a long time and she's a very good kitty. She loves me. She hates my niece, which is sad but funny because my niece is seven. My niece will come into the room uh, and the cat will chase her out of the room. It's hilarious. Anyway, oh so social media censorship is a wing of the technocratic elite that's trying to get us in lockstep. And if you really want to understand what's going on, you have to go all the way back to Mexico City when the Spanish conquistadors arrived. Because when they arrived, they encountered a city that was more technologically advanced than anything in Europe. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Now, I'm going to go off into some high grass here, so you don't have to agree with me. I'm just going to say what I think the reason is here and leave it to anyone to listen to. Uh, so back in Mexico in those days, you had this religious cult that operated on human sacrifice. Uh, if you remember Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, that's in India. But he takes his hand and he grabs the guy's heart and he rips it out and he goes, Kalima! And, and boom, and the guy's heart's beating and he's sitting there without a heart like, ah! And he goes into the flame. Well, they didn't do it as Steven Spielberg, who has his own nasty secrets in the closet, uh, did. But back in the Aztec, Olmec, Maya, Inca days, there was a lot of human sacrifice going on. And part of what they would do when they terrorized a person so bad by doing something like that in front of everybody is they would ingest the adrenochrome that came from that. Now, today, the elites do it with children. But what adrenochrome does is it acts on the mind much like uh, lysergic acid diethylamide or LSD. And what happens with the mind is, is these, um, they call it sacred geometry, but a lot of people who trip, they'll see these acid-colored, you know, multicolored shapes that are like gears in multiple dimensions fitting together. And there's this sort of... Um, um, giddy march of the, the insane, happy future uh, that's sort of imparted emotionally uh, through the use of that drug. Well, the ancient civilizations used hallucinogenic compounds like ayahuasca, like, you know, drinking the blood of the people they've killed uh, in a sacrificial motif for the holy feelings that came along with it and all that kind of stuff. And so this Mexico City civilization, which was advanced, it was in lockstep because everybody was tripping. Now, fast forward to the modern time. Steve Jobs goes over to India. He starts doing some hallucinogenic compounds. He comes back to America. The term Xerox, is, it's Greek or Latin, and it means to copy. Xerox machines were the first ones to have that little click mouse, that, you know, that we all, the cursor, we call it. And Steve Jobs, he sees this and immediately sees through his mechanistic trip shenanigans the applications to the public through the aesthetic appeal. Because before that, computers were too complex, uh, abstract for average Joes to really get into. But that aesthetic appeal made it more accessible for everybody. Steve Jobs incorporates this, and he starts working with multiple tech people who are, you know, programming sort of a private thing. Like just programming stuff then was sort of like people making apps for smartphones today. Well, uh, Bill Gates gets involved with that. He kind of steals the Steve Jobs stuff from Steve Jobs. And uh, Microsoft has becomes a monopoly, a sort of antitrust thing. And the point of what I'm saying is the genesis of modern computation is based in ideologies from things like hallucinogenic compounds and sacred geometry and that sort of thing. These things are based – there's even a book written by uh, – what's his name? Uh, the, the, the guy who – Timothy Leary, I think is that his name? Yeah, Timothy Leary. There's a book about, I think it might be called The Doors of Perception that he wrote, uh, which is about how the brain sees all these things. And it's locks, it's, it's hand in glove with the modern technocratic elite. They microdose out there, which means they take a little bit of this drug. That's why you look at a Tim Cook interview on, on uh, any media, the dude's got pupils the size of quarters. That's why, is because they're on this stuff all the time. So Microsoft, Apple, Google, Facebook, Google used to have a slogan, don't be evil. They go to Burning Man a lot where they have these rituals. They literally burn a human being in effigy as though they are following through on some ritual from a mystery school of religion back in Solomon's day. Burning Man has all the elite at it. Google heads went to Burning Man for a while and their slogan, don't be evil, gone. They don't believe that anymore. So Google and Facebook also have strong ties to the CIA. Now, I don't have the research with me or in my head to give you specific information on that. So if somebody wants to say I'm conjecturing a conspiracy, fine, I need to do more research. But there is solid intel out there that I've encountered, which says the CIA and Google are controlled by intelligence agencies as a means of cataloging information and inducing psychological operations on the public. 
So the reason we're getting censored so much is because there's a technocratic elite operating as a religious force using things like hallucinogenic compounds to align themselves for a future goal. And those of us who are conservative are saying things which are not groupthink aligned, which are not in lockstep with their religious ideology. That's why we're getting censored, is because what we're doing is throwing a wrench into their sacred geometry machine, and they can't have that. But they also can't censor us directly, so they have to be indirect and sneaky about it, because if they do it too publicly, well, it's obvious that there's something up. So they're shadow banning. They're very sneaky about it. Make no mistake, these people are not good. And what's sad about it is they represent these platforms as open platforms, as honest platforms, where anybody who has something they want to say can just say it. And that's how they were for a while. But then they bait and switched us. Once they hit a certain saturation point of users, they started putting a filter on what people can say. And that's where we're at now. So I've been banned because people in lockstep report me. And I've spent 41 days in Facebook jail as of 2020. Uh, however, what, what, what's really interesting about that is if I report somebody, Facebook says it doesn't go against the community standards. <laughs> a guy called me a racist. I'm not a racist. I'm not politically correct. And I am blunt. I've been rude before. You can call me a blunt, rude, ghost, son of a gun. You can call me politically incorrect. That's all true. Fine. I can take that. I am not a racist. I may use terms you don't like. I'm not a racist. I'm just blunt. Some guy I've never met in New York put me on a list of racist comedians that included Nick DiPaolo and Kevin Brennan and a bunch of other people. I was flattered to be on a list with these people who were obviously ahead of me in comedy. But I'm not racist. I reported that as harassment. Google, uh, excuse me, Facebook said it didn't go against their policy. So I took screenshots of all that and I've got it in a folder that I've got backed up in multiple locations in case they crashed my computer. And I intend, if there is a class action lawsuit or something, I intend to pursue that litigation. But who knows if it'll happen. It might not come to anything. Either way, there is a clear double standard here. And in my estimation, that's the reason for it. Yeah, for sure. Wow, well done, man. Um, I think I've been in Facebook jail for like five or so days, but wow, 45 days. That's- 41, 41. 41, that's an honor, that's an honor. So, um, <laughs> so how, how did you develop your comedic voice? Well, you know, I took a little bit. I used to go on stage and I'd pretend to be from Scotland. For the first nine months I did comedy, I did a Scots dialect. And I'd go on there and I'd tell a few jokes. And the idea behind this Scots dialect was so that I could have a conservative voice without alienating a primarily leftist audience. And I knew they'd be that way. So I started doing that. I'd tell one line. It's like, I love blackberries. And as I prefer to call them, wee grapes. And I'd do that. And I had some great material. And I'd segue out of that and just have a normal voice. But uh, what ended up happening within my first nine months is, uh, sorry, somebody's doing dishes over there. What ended up happening in my first nine months is uh, I would, I, I ran into a guy who was headlining as a Scottish character. And he wasn't really from Scotland. I'm not going to say his name either because I don't want to mess up his gig or anything. But he did, a, I do a better Scottish accent than him, which is kind of funny. And uh, uh, <laughs> there's a whole thing behind that. But he was headlining as this character and I realized, well, I've only got 10 or 15 minutes and it's sketchy at best. You know, I was only a few months in. You don't really know what you're doing as a comedian until you've been at it for a couple of years. There's no way around that. Just because of this weird atmosphere and having to contend with multiple different venues in different places, different types of comedians, different audiences, different heckle situations, just staying afloat financially through it all. It takes years to really find your, cruising altitude, even for the best comics. Uh, Steve Martin, and I read his book the first year I started doing comedy, he said it's about a 10-year arc that it's, it's, not, it's not based on skill, it's just, um, it's just the atmosphere. You've got to, and I'm, I'm almost a year away from that. I'm not even at the 10-year, I'm at the 10-year arc next February. Wow. I got to subtract, yeah, I got to subtract a year from that because of this COVID-19 thing. And my first year in the RV, I, you know, I was broke down for a week in some cities not doing comedy. But anyway, so my first nine months of comedy, I encountered this guy doing this Scottish character. And I realized my initial, uh, I never thought I'd find somebody who could, who could do an accent like that. I thought he was Scottish when I met him for about two or three months. And then I realized when we, were, we actually got on the road for about three months, in that first couple of weeks on the road, I realized, oh my gosh, this guy's not Scottish. 
but I was already on the road with him and I was new to comedy and I was learning. So I just thought I'd go with it. But I realized as I started out that I would have to alter my comedic voice or I wouldn't be able, you know, everybody's going to associate me with that guy. And I, I, I don't want that. So while I'm, uh, I think God put French accent, which is my main act now, you know, I headline with French accent. I think he put that character in my lap. There's a conglomeration of events and it's hard to remember them all because the dominoes were set up years in advance and then a singular event set them all going. So in 2008, I was in a play called Picasso at the Le Pont en Gilles, or I don't know how you pronounce it, I don't speak French, I just joke in it, um, which is written by Steve Martin. And I played this old dirty Frenchman named Gaston who would come in and say something wildly inappropriate and offensive. And then he'd say, well, I have to pee. And he'd leave. And I didn't mean to steal the show. We only did three performances. It was a student production. But in every single performance, I stole the show. I was just trying to do my best. I stole the dang thing. And I didn't mean to do that. I was like, whoa, there's something here. Well, my grandma passed away while I was rehearsing for that in 2008. And at her funeral, I, I gave a mild eulogy. And I just wrote down a few funny things because my grandma loved to laugh. She's one of the funny... You'd think Germans don't have a sense of humor, and 99.9% .9 of them do not. But my grandmother, who's German, I'm not full-blooded German, she was, she was one of the funniest ladies that I ever knew in my life. And so I wanted to do some funny stuff at the funeral, and I didn't think anybody would laugh. Every single thing I said at that, you, it hit. It was only a minute or two. It made people laugh. I was flabbergasted. So those two things happened in 2008. I didn't start comedy until 2011. In 2011, my little brother uh, was going to go to school in a place that wasn't our hometown because our hometown was small and didn't have a lot of opportunities. So my parents wanted me to chaperone him because he wasn't going to be living at home. He was going to be living in the town I was at. So I didn't want to do it, but then I, I decided it would be the right thing to do. So I think because I decided to do the right thing, God gave me, God threw me a bone, essentially, because what happened is while I'm moving from my apartment, because it would mean moving out of my apartment to live with him for a couple of years while he's in high school. And so what I did is I had my keyboard, I, I play piano, and I had it leaned against the wall, and the weight of the keyboard actually broke the AC-DC adapter on the bottom, so I had to send it to an electronics guy to get it fixed. While that AC adapter is broken, I don't have an instrument to play. I had been given a, uh, an accordion the Christmas previous, and I just hadn't messed with it because they're hard to play. Well, I also like Mitch Hedberg, and Mitch Hedberg had a bass in the back of his, he'd, he'd do a joke like, I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. And I thought that was hilarious. Well, I couldn't copy what he was doing, but I liked that dynamic. Zach Galifianakis also used keys, and I play piano, but I didn't want to copy what he was doing. However, I liked the dynamic of the music involved with the comedy. So now my keyboard is busted and I have this accordion. And I have an eye patch because I played Snake Plissken for Halloween right before that. So, and, and then because the, the Scottish guy, um, because I couldn't do what he was doing, I was already thinking about moving my act. And I had written a treatment out for a new character called French Accent. The name's an acronym. It stands for Francois Raphael Edgar Norbert Celestine Herbert. Absalon, Quarantine, Clement, Emmanuel, Nathaniel, tell us four, the initial spell French accent. He was going to be a bureaucrat who told stories like unjamming the printer in the office as though he like conquered a new world or something. You know, he was just, just over the top. And it wasn't that strong, honestly. But as I'm moving, all these things come together when I pick up that accordion and just start messing around with it. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I could just play some simple thing and I could tell some of the one-liners I've been telling as the Scottish guy with this French persona. And then there was the eye patch and the beret from when I played Snake Plissken for Halloween. So I put that on and I was cracking myself up as I did this. And then the next Monday, I went to Hody's Half Note in Fort Collins and I tried out French accent for the first time. And it was one of the best sets I'd ever had. Now, looking back on that set, I've got it recorded on my YouTube. Um, it was okay. It wasn't that funny but it did pretty good. And within a month, I got my first paid gig of 20 bucks. It was uh, early January, like January the 1st or 2nd. I got my first paid gig as French accent. And then I went on the road with that fake Scots guy for about three months. And I developed a, uh, a feature set, a full length, hardcore 30 minute feature set. 
with different audiences in different states all around the country. Well, we were sleeping in cars, doing dive bars. Occasionally, we do a different comedy club. I did shows in Florida and Philadelphia, in Baltimore. I did shows in Oklahoma. I think we did some in Arkansas as well. We did them in Washington. We did them in Oregon. We did them in Wyoming and Montana and Kansas. We did them in Iowa, all over the country. And so I got to see how different people in different regions responded. And so I structured my jokes to hit the lowest common denominator while simultaneously being unique and having an edge of oblique activism about them, which you can totally ignore if you don't agree with me and still have a good time. So that's where my comedy voice comes from as of this time. And I've just been refining it ever since. And you, it's never over. You're always refining it is, is what I think I found out at this point. Yeah, that's amazing. Cool. So um, what do you think is the future of comedy? Like you've been in it for like, you know, almost 10 years. What are your thoughts on where it's going to go? You know, this is a hard question. It depends on the future of the country, I think. Yeah. If we stop these synthetic riots that are definitely being orchestrated from without by anti-American interests, if we can stop that and not go into civil war, there will be a backlash against alternative comedy, and the result will be conservative alternative comedy, which is going to do the same thing liberal alternative comedy did once it metastasizes. So what will happen is those of us who are educated and actually fair-minded are going to have to realize it's going to go the other direction. The pendulum will swing the other way, and we're going to have to, if you want to stay in comedy past that shenanigans, you're going to have to stay centered. Because it's just as bad to go far left as it is far right. The truth is like a straight line and left and right politics. They intersect that straight line. Sometimes, you know, it says in scripture, um, feed the, uh, take care of the orphan and the widow. But it says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So there should be welfare. But that welfare needs to be metered to the recipient such that those who need it get it. And those who don't need it aren't sucking on the teeth of the system like some overgrown man child. So it's the same with anything in life. With comedy, if you're too far to the left, then you become authoritarian. If you're too far to the right, you become heartless authoritarian. The balance is in the middle. So I think the future of comedy, if we're able to stop this uh, synthetic civil war, is going to be far right. If we're not able to stop it, then I don't know if we're going to have an America. Because uh, the first civil war was pretty bad. Right now, our country is exceptionally divided. It's not because of Donald Trump. It's because we have interests instigating the people deliberately to foster rebellion for the purposes of establishing a new sort of government, uh, a sort of socialist globalist state. And that's what we have to fight against. And if we can fight against it, comedy is going to be great. People are going to love it and they're going to want to make fun of the crap we've all been through. But if we can't, I think comedy will be dead until America settles down and the war's over. So it all depends on what happens in the next couple months here, in my opinion. I may be wrong. That's just what I think. Yeah, very deep, very well thought out. I, I, yeah, I do think a lot of things are up in the air. We can't control it. Uh, wow, this is a really deep stuff. I love it, you know, but it's like something, something to think about. Um, so who are your favorite comedians? Let's lighten it up a little bit. Uh, who are your all right. Yeah. I love Steve Martin. He cracks me up every time. I love Mitch Hedberg. There's a, there's a guy named Tony Baker I met at Big Pine Comedy Festival last year, and he does some hilarious videos where he does the voice track over online animal videos. He's like, he's like the new Bob Saget, but he's 10,000 times funnier. And Is he the guy he who yells at the cat? I don't know if, I don't know if he yells at the cat. He's a, he's a black dude, and he does, like, there's a raccoon, and the raccoon runs up, and there's, like, a bunch of cats around some water. And the raccoon like grabs some food and he sticks it in the water. And what Tony does is he voices over the raccoon and, uh, and he's like, hey y'all, how you doing? Hey, hey, have you ever taken the food and dipped it in the water? This is delicious, you gotta try this. And then the cat hits on him, he's like, all right, I see you up tight. Well, uh, and it's very, very funny. And I, I've seen that video a hundred times and makes me laugh every time. And he's got like hours of this stuff and his standup is hilarious, I saw him live. So I love Tung Baker. Uh, new comics, he's one of the ones. I love Steve Martin. I love Mitch Hedberg. I used to love Bill Cosby, but then he was roofing the people with the drugs in the jello pudding, and it was not funny at all. So that kind of killed that. Um, I like Eddie Murphy. Uh, I think he was a bit of, 
you know, he started comedy when he was a teenager and he came into his own in his mid 20s in the 80s. So he got slightly stifled without realizing it by that, but he's starting again. Um, who else? I like George Carlin, though we don't always agree. Um, Dimitri Martin and uh, who's the other one? Jim Gaffigan, I like a lot as well. Oh, I saw Bill Burr live. He's hilarious. Norm MacDonald is killer. You've got to check out Norm MacDonald. That man is funnier than anybody realized because he has mastered the art of oblique subtlety and he's amazing at it. That man rocks it. I like Dave Chappelle a lot. I wish he had done comedy instead of a TED talk for that 27 minute thing he did about a week ago. But uh, I love Dave Chappelle. He's very funny. He knows what he's doing. He's talented and he bucks the system. Even if, you know, he doesn't agree with, with all, uh, all the white people, he, he's very funny. So I, I like a lot of comics. What I don't like are these, these, uh, these alt comics to, uh, who, who are using their platform. They mistake mockery and sarcasm for humor and that's no good. Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome, so like where was your favorite place ever to perform? I'm gonna have to think about that for a minute. The favorite place ever to perform. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if we're talking, if we're talking a venue, Madhouse in San anything, Diego. Anything, yeah, anything. I'm, I'm just curious because, like, you know, obviously online is a hostile environment. Um, right. <laughs> so in person, well, like, uh, yeah, what was the best place that you performed? Madhouse in San Diego has got to be one of my favorite gigs of all time. And I hope I can still go there once this is all over because I've really pissed off some people in San Diego. I love them. Uh, but, you know, they're getting after me. I'm getting after them. And uh, I wouldn't. I never would have blocked anybody online before. In fact, for years, I didn't. And I was vocal and they were vocal. I'd let them have this day and I'd fight it out with them. But because I've spent 41 days in Facebook jail this year, it's come to my attention that if I don't block people, my voice won't be heard because they're trying to stab me in the back. Yes, for sure. So I have to. And I never wanted to do that because I, I'm friends with people all over the political spectrum, people who adamantly disagree with what I believe, with, uh, believe in and people who do. I, I don't care. If, if, if we can be adults, if we can disagree agreeably, I don't agree to disagree. I disagree agreeably, which is to say, we're going to disagree and we're going to have these conversations, but we're still going to be friends. That's where I was at. Now there's people in San Diego who hate my ever-loving guts, and I hope I can come back to the madhouse and do some time. I love that room. That is a hilarious room. It's a room that is not elitist and runs itself well, and they've managed to make it through some very difficult economic times. They've got a very talented staff, and I love everybody, even the folks I've gotten into it with. I love everybody at that room, and I, I hope they keep going and pull through this because they are a great group. Uh, so I get a kick out of Madhouse. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to think. There are some, there are some sublime shows I have done where I got, a, I got a few, I've had a few shows where people stood up and clapped. I'm trying to remember where those were. Um, I mean, I've done shows in dive bars, which went amazing. I've done shows with four or five people that were great. I did a show for one girl once in Greeley, Colorado, at a place called The Down Under. And we were trying to get a comedy club going there. And it was hard. They ended up closing down. It was very sad. But we were doing all kinds of shows. Um, Madhouse jumps to mind. There are other shows I've done that were very good. That's just, I've had the most, because they, I've, I've performed to packed houses there multiple times because they know how to run it right. And in LA, because there's so much entertainment, everybody's spoiled rotten. So you can't, you, unless you're at the comedy store, you're not going to get a very excellent audience or maybe the improv or something. You'll get a few, but you want, oh, 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 that's right. That's right. Big time comedy festival. Big Pine Comedy Festival in Flagstaff, Arizona. It's an annual comedy festival. They have people from all walks of life and all persuasions. The people who run the festival, I don't think they think the same as I do. They have people from the far left and the far right and the center and all over. And it's hilarious. And there's workshops. It's like comedy summer camp. That's what I was missing. You ever get a chance, just to, even if you can just attend rather, rather than being part of it, it's worth it. Um, send videos and they might you know give you a slot they'll give you a place to stay for the week uh they have activities there's food there there's drinks there's parties there's comedy shows there's podcasts professionals from the industry from canada down to phoenix to la show up there people from the east coast and the west coast it's got to be the best comedy festival i've ever attended so madhouse and big pine comedy festival those are my favorites
Awesome. Thank you for that. So my first time hearing yeah. about this is great. So what advice would you give for a comedian like just starting out? Okay. I don't feel like right now, but you know what I mean? Like, just yeah. so what advice would you give them? Three main things. Write as much as you can and find a way of, you know, organizing that. Because uh, you'll have, you know, if you write down 10 things in a week, one of them will be funny. But if you do that consistently, you'll have four funny jokes by the end of the month. That could be two or three minutes or just 30 seconds, depending on the joke. You do that all year, you're going to have between one, uh, 12 minutes and an hour every year that's new. So write consistently as much as you can. When you're on stage, you have to have total confidence, even if the set is not going well. A good comedian, a very seasoned comedian, you'll see this, because everybody bombs. Bombing never goes away. It just decreases in frequency. A good comedian knows how to bomb with grace. A bad comedian, they get all flustered, and you can tell they're really off the game. A good comedian's like, oh, it's one of these nights? All right, I'm going to lean into it. So when you're on stage, you have to have total confidence. Sometimes that confidence will be misplaced. The audience isn't going to know better. They're, they're going to think that's what you meant to do. Whenever you don't have confidence, though, and you stutter a little bit and you don't address the stuttering or something, or, you know, you lose your rhythm and you start to sweat, well, the audience can sense that and it's going to just be a, it's going to spiral out until you're done. So uh, you have to keep writing all the time, have total confidence on stage, even if it's unwarranted, eventually you'll learn how to be warranted. You'll figure out what works consistently. And three, keep doing it. Those three things, I think if you do those three things, you're going to find your cruising altitude in terms of comedy. Comedy is the performance equivalent of original jazz. Jazz now is not what it was. Um, jazz now has become overproduced. It's not jazz anymore. Jazz as it originally was, was a lot closer to the Grateful Dead jamming out. Um, and I'm not a huge Grateful Dead fan because they just, you know, they get off on the drugs and keep going until they pass out. And sometimes it was really good. Sometimes it really sucked. Uh, they do have some really good songs, though, like uh, uh, Unbroken Chain's great and um, uh, Peggio. Love those songs. But uh, uh, comedy is a stand-up equivalent of jazz in that your set list is like the chord progression, but no show is ever going to be the same because the lighting, the audience, um, the, the, uh, the time of day, the city, all these things changes, uh, change. So just got, you have to understand what your chord progression is and drill that down and then be willing to move with the punches. And Oh, one, one last bit of advice. And I learned this from Steve Martin, cause it's a book, uh, read the book born standing up by Steve Martin. It's got all the shortcut Easter eggs in it. It's 200 pages. You'll read it in an afternoon. If you're passionate about comedy. In that book, he says something that a lot of comedians don't realize. Comedy is almost never in ideal circumstances. And this is all the way to the A-list level. Because one of the reasons he quit comedy, he was doing a show in Vegas. He was going to do this song, King Tut. And he wanted his guitar to come down from the ceiling. Because once you get to the point where you're established enough to do a Vegas show, you actually get a crew and you can do special things like that. Starting out in comedy, you can't really depend on the people running the venue. But once you get to the point, you can. Well, two or three times, that guitar didn't come down. And he got so mad because he'd been doing it 10 years at that point. He was done with it. But what, what he pointed out, what, one of the things he taught us from that as comedians is that comedy is almost never going to be in an ideal circumstance. And Bill Cosby, well, <laughs> predictably, he said, let the funny happen. You have the roofie and you feel kind of funny. Let the funny happen. Well, that's horrible. But let the funny happen. Comedy's never in ideal circumstances. So because comedy's never in an ideal circumstance, you lean into it and just let whatever's funny about what's going on happen. Don't try and stop it. Um, Bill Burr says he actually likes hecklers. He wants to hear what you're thinking. Because if you know, and it takes a while to get this seasoned, if you know how to deal with a heckler, they're actually going to be part of the show. It's, yes. it's all going to be part of the show. I love hecklers. They're the best. Yeah, I've, I, I, I've got a love-hate relationship with them. I'm better at dealing with hecklers than I've ever been, but they will throw your rhythm off. Um, and you've got to be able to lean into that and let the funny happen. Uh, so basically, when that happens, now that's part of the show. 
So uh, let's see if we can get it all together. I guess it's more than three things. Uh, keep doing it. Write continuously. Have confidence. Let the funny happen. And know that it's never going to be an ideal circumstance. Just lean into that. Though I guess that's five things. Five is the number of grace. That's right. Do those five great. things. Yeah. They're going to be yeah. over. I love it. So um, before we share YouTube and social media and your album and everything again, um, what other advice would you give that you didn't get a chance to talk about or just general things? Um, comedy doesn't, it should be a complete meritocracy. And when I started with comedy, I thought it was, but there is a huge political angle to it. So you've got a uh, you've got a love hate trade off here. If you play politics, it will stifle the jokes you're able to do, but you'll get more bookings. But you won't be as funny as you could be because you're playing politics rather than actually becoming a skilled performer. So you can play politics, and it will seem like you're doing better, but you're not. You're stagnating. You're using the dark side of the force. If you don't play politics, you will be a better comedian, but it will be harder. Dad, you're in the shot. Just so you know you will be harder. So uh, it, it will be harder to do. So play politics, you go faster. Don't play politics. It's harder, but uh, you'll be a better comedian. That's true. That's awesome. It's only advice that, you know, somebody who's been in the industry for years can give. I really appreciate it. So how can we find out more about you? How can we book you? What's your website? You know, all the social medias. Uh, well, I used to have a website. I don't anymore, but I, I primarily use Facebook. I'm Kevin Bennett on Facebook. My uh, French, my my comedy page is French Accent, and uh, that's a lot of where I do my stuff. On Twitter, I'm Kevin dot or I'm French Accent at Piano Man sixty nine. On Instagram, I'm Kevin dot Bennett dot nine six nine. I didn't choose the six nine on Instagram. It just gave it to me. I did choose it on Twitter because I was immature, but I had a slight following, so I kept it. I, what are you gonna do? So that's my Instagram. Uh, let's see. My album is I'm from Wyoming. Obviously it's on Spotify, Apple, iTunes. It's on everything. It's on Amazon. I have a book out called the thief and the sacrifice, which is no longer available in print because the publisher folded, but I do have a book available in print called amphibian. If you Google amphibian by Kevin Bennett, it'll show up a, a orange and black cover and it's a hundred page sci-fi romp. Uh, on on music side on the music side of things, I have uh, a bunch of my music on Drooble D R O O B L E dot com. Got about 120 songs on there you can listen to. And let's see, what am I missing? Album, got that. The music, I got the books out there. Um, on YouTube, I have a YouTube page too. I just Google Kevin Bennett comedian or French accent comedian or Kevin Bennett America's Got Talent or French accent America's Got Talent. It'll bring up the America's Got Talent video. And then uh, beyond that, you'll see that uh, on the sidebar, there's a bunch of links. You can just look up Kevin Bennett. It should bring me up, but you might not know what I look like. So if you do the AGT, you see a guy with an eye patch and an accordion. That's me. That's my, that's my character. And uh, it's a great voice. It's a great, it's a great way to communicate directly with the audience. Oh, that's another tip. Your audience will judge you immediately and Every one of them, even if they want to laugh, somewhere in their mind, there's going to be a little gremlin sitting there saying, make me laugh. If you can find a way to get behind that attitude by throwing them off, it'll make it easier to make them laugh. And that's one of the things my character does. Love it. Awesome. So you've, you, you taught me so much. I hope the audience learned something from, um, you know, this, this awesome interview. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, would love to have you on for future episodes. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me, Lee Lynn.